Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome a prestigious screenwriter whose work has covered topics ranging from prison breaks to the bloodthirsty undead. Not only was he the writer of From Dusk Till Dawn 3, The Hangman's Daughter, but he also served as part of the writing team of the celebrated From Dusk Till Dawn TV series. With Machete, he helped introduce a new kind of grindhouse anti-hero, and with The Last Rampage, The Escape of Gary Tyson, he told the shocking true story of an infamous jailbreak. Recently, he's brought his talents to the popular TV series Chicago Fire and just announced his latest endeavor, a Mexicanime called Seis Manos. Please welcome to the show, Alvaro Rodriguez. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to have you on. I feel it's long overdue. Long. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to dig into all of these things. I'm excited to talk to you about all of the stuff that you've done, the stuff that you're working on. Uh, But why don't we start the show uh, the same way I start every show, with the same first question that I ask every guest, and it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Uh, Why does horror connect to you? Why do you think horror has a mass appeal? Or like, however you choose to answer the question, but why horror? Why horror? Well, I think... uh I feel like the answer has to be personal because um, otherwise, you know, um, I don't want to be too general. Um, and, um, you know, this is my therapy, so I'm going <laughs> to go with that. Um, why horror? I was I was drawn to it from an early, early age. It was one of those things, you know, uh, they call it kinder trauma, I guess, and where you, you just latch on to certain things. I was a Stephen King kid. I was, uh, I was a voracious reader from a very early age. And um, Stephen King uh, and and writers like him, Dean Koontz, I guess, John Saul, all those kind of, you know, for me, paperbacks and then later hardcover. But, you know, as a kid, it was like, you know, um, just devouring those paperbacks, starting with, you know, I, I think maybe my first thing was reading stories in Night Shift or something, probably off of Children of the Corn or something like that, that just completely... Um, sucked me in and I was always a kind of Edgar Allan Poe kid and I was always you know I I was just drawn to this stuff and I think that you know um, I think the why horror you know sort of lends itself to the white queer horror and you know growing up extremely closeted for a long time I mean decades and um, you know I felt like there was something where um, the sort of hidden, um, sort of hidden depths of things. There was a, there was some sort of symbiotic relationship I felt between my closeted sexuality and my love of, um, of, uh, of horror, of, of forbidden things. And so I think in some way it was all, um, tangled and, and, and entwined in that. So you definitely prescribe to the school of thought that there is, uh, for a certain kind of horror fan, that that connection to queer identity because of that absolutely. otherness. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I was probably in high school when I first read Clyde Barker, and you know, I I didn't know that, you know, um, I didn't know anything about his sexuality but i you know i you there's nothing to sense it's it's there on the page and so reading it it was just like this um um this thrill that uh you know that that touched both you know i think those primitive um um sensors in any sort of uh um uh, sensitive boys being of of horror and sexuality and sensuality and the forbidden mm-hmm. um to uh that was incredibly attractive and um 
and became sort of my, uh, you know, my drug of choice as a young person. So, you know, in my first sort of short stories that I was writing as, you know, a junior high kid, you know, they were all tinged with horror, with, you know, sort of the, the, the twist and, um, and this sense of otherness, a sense of somehow being an outsider, somehow being, um, um, you know, uh, having affinities with um, the forbidden things. So there are a couple different paths there that I think all intertwine together that I okay. want to talk about. But I uh, am interested because you said, you know, it took you uh, decades to kind of come to terms with your sexuality. Yep. And when you did, when you looked back at the course of your life, do you feel like, you know, a lot of these things were, were all sort of the leading you there or, you know, the building oh, sure. blocks? I mean, I think all the signs were there from a really early age. It's like, um, you know nobody that reads as much as I did and loved movies as much as I did and was attracted to the things that I did. And, you know, I think any, any uh, sort of objective person would have come and said, Hey, you know, I think that kid's gay, but no one really did. <laughs> um, and I was probably one of those people that tried to ignore it or, you know, tried to keep it hidden and keep it stuffed down. Um, but yeah, it was, it was always, it was an omnipresent thing. I think from a very early age. So you you started with a love of books in the yes. world of horror, which I really uh, want to dig into a little bit because a lot of times when people tell their horror origin story, it's like, oh, I watched Halloween on cable or whatever. But I think that there is something to be said about the power of the paperback. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's a recent book called Paperbacks from Hell, which I'm, I'm sure you maybe have seen it. I think the writer's name is Grady Hendrix. And it's just this, this compilation of paperback covers from this you know, from the last, I would say, 40, 50 years of, uh, of publishing. And, and I, I was that kid who was like scouring the paperback racks and in, you know, in your Walden books or whatever, and in your used bookstores trying to find and being allured by uh, and lured by these covers and what they promised, you know. And sometimes you hit on stuff that wasn't very good, but oftentimes you found these amazing stories that just, um, you know, stuck with you forever and uh, and resonated with you. And yeah, I mean, it was, I think it was definitely a situation because I did come to things from a writing point of view at first and a reading point of view. I, you know, as a, as a, kid growing up, I suppose I had certain um, interests in filmmaking, uh, but I, you know, I, 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 tr I made several attempts at filmmaking as a kid, but they were all sort of like, um, they were all sort of uh, hampered by a lack of um, the means of production kind of stuff. Um, when I went to a uh, uh, Catholic boys boarding school for a couple of years when I was a freshman and a sophomore in high school. And Robert Rodriguez, my older cousin, was also a student there, but he was a day student. He happened to live across the street from the school, so he didn't live there. It was in another town. It was in San Antonio, about four hours north of where I grew up. So I was a resident. I lived there. And Robert was already starting to make his first films, and I wanted to get on that bandwagon. And I had written a little script called Satan's Cell, and, you know, tried to, you know, um, went through this whole Sisyphean um, ordeal of trying to make this, this short film. Uh, and, you know, it, it didn't happen, but it was, uh, um, it, you know, uh, and I think at the same time, all, all of those things started in the written word. 
and then later became visual. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think once, um, you know, just to to give a tiny bit of history, once Robert made his first film, El Mariachi, which I had done music for, I started writing with him, and, and, um, and he was, uh, a few years later, in Japan promoting a film he did, also a horror film that Kevin Williamson wrote called The Faculty. And we were on uh, AOL Instant Messenger back and forth, and he said, you know, Dimension wants to do two back-to-back sequels to Dust Till Dawn. And so I pitched an idea for a spaghetti western prequel, and they went for it, and I ended up writing it, and that was sort of like my, uh, you know, my cherry in uh, in doing anything horror as a as a screenwriter. And what a great way to enter the world of yeah. feature film writing. Uh, you said something when you were talking about discovering paperbacks that I thought that really just hit uh, an, an, a sweet spot for me is when you would go to the bookstore and look at those those covers. Because I think a lot of times when we talk about the 70s and 80s and 90s era of horror discovery, people always talk about going to the video store and that sort of allure in the horror section of seeing the artwork. But what, and, and with Grady Hendrix's book, this is a, it's a nice way to kind of see how powerful this was, but there was this amazing era of horror paperbacks, which were churned out. There were so many by so many different labels, but the artwork was all salacious. And like, you know, I remember some of them like the tricycle where it's like a dead little kid, like on a train. You're like, why? I don't even know what this is, but I have to read it. And, um, I just, uh, I really dig that. I like the the idea that um, horror really had that heyday on both sides. Um, yeah, absolutely. And like I said, you know, I think, you know, film was always important. And, and I had, you know, very formative film experiences uh, that were horror related. Like at that same boarding school, I had gone there for what they called the summer experience. It was like a week-long retreat thing to kind of get you acclimated and see if this was a school you wanted to, to go to um, as a high schooler. And I think I was in the seventh grade when I went on this thing. And um, the night before the whole thing ended, they set up on the tennis courts, uh, they set up a 16-millimeter projector and a screen and showed a bunch of seventh graders Night of the Living Dead. At a Catholic school? At a Catholic what? school. Go George Romero. Yeah, which <laughs> totally, I had never seen it before, and it had com- it completely freaked the hell out of me. I was so, um, it was so, you know, it's just one of those experiences that can never be replicated that same sense of, you know, being in that space and watching this, what you know, I still, I think, still today is a highly transgressive movie, uh, you know, with a bunch of priests and <laughs> pre-teenage boys. Um, and I guess I'll leave that there. But it was just, you know, uh, those all those experiences, I think. And um, you know, I read Pet Cemetery when I was there at that school, and um, and remember vividly, um, you know, putting the book down at night getting into my in the bottom bunk of my bunk bed and fearing for my life that little Gage would be under my bunk bed and <laughs> try to come and slice my ankle or what have you. Um, and, but yeah, it was all of those things. I think the paperbacks, uh, you know, the, the, the thing, I think when you start from the word, it engages your mind in a different way than engaging with the visual first. And so I felt like all of those initial short stories, all those initial novels and books that I'd read, paperbacks and, you know, everything from even Sherlock Holmes stories that seemed to have, 
you know, a darker side to them um, uh, just, you know, captured my imagination. And then really getting into horror uh, with movies like Night of the Living Dead and then, you know, I'm skipping school to go see Hellraiser the day it opened and stuff <laughs> like that and Angel Heart and... Um, so, and scouring video stores uh, for posters and putting up all these horror posters and, you know, it was just, it was, it was so, so much stuff. Was there a Keystone, no- I mean, obviously you read a lot, but was there yeah. like a Keystone novel that was like, when you think back to that era, like, that's the book that was sort of like the centerpiece that like kicked it off or was it just a culmination of things? Well, you know, I'm trying to think back because I, I, I thought about, I had not thought about this really before, but I know when I was a kid, I was, I, you know, I, I grew up in the late 70s through the 80s, and I was the kid who um, was enamored of the novelization, you know, the paperback novelization of movies, to the point where I sent away for the Warner Books catalog and would order novelizations through the mail and sometimes, you know, find them in bookstores. Um, so I had the novelizations for everything from Every Which Way But Loose to Escape from New York to, um, you know, the photo novel of uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the Philip Kaufman version, and all of those things that were just so vivid um, for me in reading those books and feeling like they were like I said, almost this sort of uh, forbidden fruit. Um, I'm trying to think if there was a specific book. I know reading Night Shift uh, was really powerful, although those are all stories. I'm trying to think of the first Stephen King book that I'd read that really, really resonated with me as a novel. And I, you know, Dead Zone was another one that I'd read also at the time that I was just... Uh, you know, I was so, you know, growing up in South Texas and feeling sort of isolated and then experiencing this whole other world and feeling how real it was, the world of Castle Rock, the world of, you know, the stories that, that King wrote and and stuff like that. Um, I remember reading a book by John Saul uh, called Nathaniel. And I remember reading, of course, Comes a Blind Fury and Suffer the Children and all those kinds of books that, you know, that, that seemed to... Um, speak to, um, you know, uh, a, sort of haunted children and things like that. So felt this sort of um, rapport with, but I don't know if I could trace it back to a specific one. But those are all great yeah. books that you referenced. Uh, do you recall, because you, you were enamored with reading, obviously, uh, you yep. mentioned a little bit about how at one point you decided to make a short film and went through the process of doing that. Um, but do you remember when you decided, uh, I'm not, you know, I want to do more than just engage with this as a reader or a viewer. I want to make this like my, my goal and my passion. Do you remember when that happened? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the weird thing is that I, I wanted to be a writer. I, I always wanted to be a writer from a really young age. You know, I, I begged, you know, my, my dad, um, uh, is retired now, but he was a junior high school counselor, and it was like the thrill of my life to spend time with him in the office because then I had access to an IBM Selectric, <laughs> and I could type up all the things that I had been writing and thinking about. Um, and so, you know, when I when I went to 
when I was in high school, I started writing stories and poems and things like that. And then I had three semesters of creative writing as an undergraduate, but they were all in poetry. And then I worked as a journalist, as a reporter, um, as an entertainment reporter at the beginning, and then later on as a general reporter and even doing some investigative stuff. And it really wasn't, um, you know, I, I hadn't, I hadn't, I don't know if it was just another sort of closet that I put myself in of not sort of feeling like I was capable of, of making movies, of doing, of screenwriting, of anything like that. I wasn't, you know, those, it, it's so, um, it's like almost, a, I don't know if it ever, the thought had ever really occurred to me other than those aborted attempts in high school at making this short or that short and, you know, um, uh, but, um, um, it was only until later that I realized that all of that stuff that I had kind of devalued, like writing poetry or being a reporter, really lent itself to screenwriting because it's the most bare bones, elemental, you know, skeletal form of writing that there is. And so in poetry, when you're trying to create images in the reader's mind in just as few words as possible that lends itself to screenwriting and the just the facts ma'am uh you know sort of approach to reporting um also lends itself to screenwriting um and i remember when i did write dust till dawn what became dust till dawn three the hangman's daughter i had gotten a comment from one of the executives at merrimax and dimension who's like you know we never read a script like this before it's like a novel and i was like oh Okay, <laughs> um, and I realized that that's not a good thing. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, it was fine at the time, but I, you know, I, I because I was I was learning by doing, and I was learning the process, and I was adapting myself to this to this more um, um, essential form of writing that where you couldn't be Charles Dickens or Stephen King when you're writing a script. You, I mean, you obviously. King has written screenplays, but you can't be a novelist as a screenwriter. You right. can't go into that kind of detail and stuff like that. But uh, you're, um, so you're saying that Maximum Overdrive is not the great American novel? No. Well, it was a short story, but it is a good movie. Yeah, I love Maximum. Overdrive. I love it too. Yeah. I remember, you know, the trailers and that thing came out, and going to see it, and I'm going to scare the hell out of you, and um, you know, I, I was I was totally on uh, you know on King team uh, that whole time, so I it was perfect for me. Honestly, would like him to direct another film. Absolutely, I loved him in Creepshow. Uh, yes, please. Uh, so do more. Yeah, no. I, well, always. I I feel like though he is the one who the most hyperactive uh, writer oh, of, of us all. Uh, yeah, that's why he has achieved all the things he has. Absolutely. Uh, so um, before we we get into the world of movies, I have to ask because you are so reverential and uh, to the world of, of books and novels, and that was your first kind of love in the world of, of writing. Is there a novel out there that you? God, I hope so. You know, when I I went back to school um, to pursue a master's degree, it was a master's degree in literature I got a few years back, several years back now. And my whole point of going to go back and do this master's degree was that it was going to have a creative component. I would be able to do a creative thesis. And my whole point was I'm going to go and I'm going to come out with a novel. So I started writing this novel, um, which, uh, you know, touched on a lot of things about, you know, my growing up and, and that going to that Catholic school and, um, and you know, questions of sexuality and identity and um, and I started writing this thing, and I realized I don't I don't know that I'm ready to do this yet. 
And then I wrote a short story uh, that was set along the Texas-Mexico border. And as I wrote that one, another one came very quickly. And I realized that I could write this sort of series of interconnected short stories set on the Tex-Mex border with characters coming in and out of each other's stories. Um, there's a little bit of horror element in it. There's a lot of sort of sexuality elements in it. There's a little bit of magical realism in it. But that became sort of my sort of book. And several of those stories got published in journals and online in different places. One of them was nominated for a Pushcart Prize. And, and it just sort of like really, you know, made me think about that process again. Um, I hope that I can at some point feel like I'm, you know, uh, I, I found today when I've been kind of cleaning up and I, I found my a little card I had from the American Red Cross uh, that that certified me as an advanced beginner in swimming. <laughs> Wait, and what's I, that mean? <laughs> I, it means that I'd taken certain classes and now I was an I was an advanced beginner. That phrase in, in swimming, just like from a writing perspective yeah. or like a syntax, like a language <laughs> perspective to unpack the phrase advanced beginner is that, so I felt like that was yep. like the perfect thing. I feel like I'm an advanced beginner. I feel like I've done a lot, but I'm still at the beginning. I'm still starting out. You know, I think part of that is all tied up with, uh, you know, kind of coming out much later and uh, all of these things of feeling like an advanced beginner. Well, speaking of advanced beginnings and uh, just beginnings, you mentioned that uh, while you were in school, you had several uh, failed attempts at trying to make a short film. And then uh, eventually, obviously, you made it to the world of film. Was El Mariachi the first film that you worked on that got finished? Or was there what, what happened before that? I mean, I had... Um... I guess I had made little things when I was I was you know in high school and stuff like that, but but nothing you know nothing at all of note, and um, you know uh, growing up from I would say about age thirteen on throughout college, I was spending a lot of time uh, with my cousin Robert, and we ended up uh, he was going to University of Texas, I went to the University of Texas, we lived together for a while. As he was making his first short films and stuff, he was making his first short films in high school that when we were together. And then when he went to make El Mariachi, I did music for that, as I said. And um, um, you know, it just once that became a thing, you know, the film won an audience award at Sundance, and and it just sort of like I I suddenly saw like there's this door and it's opening, and I got to get my foot in there somehow. And I, I had, um, you know, started writing, started writing script stuff. And Robert and I start, collaborated on a script together um, that called Till Death It Was Part. He had met this young actress that he thought was amazing and he wanted to write something for her. And her name was Salma Hayek. And so we, <laughs> we wrote the script for her and um, it, it never got made. It got close to getting made very early on. And then it, it, uh, he ended up doing a movie for Showtime called Road Racers with Salma and John Hawks and David Arquette. And, um, uh, but he ended up taking scenes from our script till death to his part and using them in spy kids and once upon a time Mexico and stuff like that. But it did, it opened the door and, um, you know, I, I wrote my first script on my own, which never got made, but, you know, started opening some doors for me. And then I just, I kept working with him and, um, you know, wrote the hangman's daughter, um, had a couple of, uh, scripts, uh, 
at Miramax that nothing happened with, but then things kind of, you know, dried out for a while. And it wasn't until, you know, um, we worked together on uh, a few things on Grindhouse on Planet Terror, uh, and then on Shorts, the kids movie that he did, and then uh, Machete and Machete just, you know, really kicked the door down and, and, um, you know, opened up a lot of opportunities and started to build relationships with people and, um, you know, it's gotten me where I am. Before we dig into that, because obviously that was a, Michelle was a big pop culture moment, I think. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, that, the whole genesis of that from fake trailer to film. Uh, I do w- w- want to t- briefly touch upon, because you've mentioned a few times that you composed music for El Mariachi. Uh, composed. Well, so I was going to ask, is, uh, is music something that is really part of your background? Uh, you know, we've, we, we know each other, but we've never actually talked about this. So I'm yeah, kind of yeah. curious. Um, you know, music, I was always, you know, I was, a, I was, um, I was country before when country wasn't cool, as they say. I mean, as a kid, I, I grew up listening to Outlaw Country, Johnny Cash and Chris Christopherson and all that kind of stuff. And then disco. And, you know, I, I went through the whole metal phase in the early 80s and with the Motley Crues and, you know, the Iron Maidens. And then, you know, Tracy Chapman and Suzanne Vega came around and completely changed my mind and 10,000 Maniacs. And, but as far as music might have been playing it, you know, when I was at that Catholic boys' school, all the priests played guitar. And I was always haranguing them, trying to get them to teach me, and none of them would do it. One priest told me, it's like, you'll just want to learn how to play Stairway to Heaven, and then you'll never shut the fuck up. <laughs> and, um, but then one, one priest did, did give me a mandolin. He said, all right, look, I'm going to show you some stuff on the mandolin. Just do this, do this. So I played in the, you know, like the Mother's Day Mass and mandolin, you know, whatever. And, uh, but then, you know, I got a cheap guitar in Mexico and uh, I started kind of teaching myself how to play. I got a couple of lessons from, from a cousin and, um, but I kind of learned by the Led Zeppelin songbook and the Neil Young songbook and just started writing songs. And so when Robert's doing El Mariachi, he's like, I want to do some like Spanish songs, you know, here. So I, I made up a couple of songs and, um, we recorded them in his apartment one day, and he writes about this in Rebel Without a Crew. And I was like, we recorded for a couple hours. I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's any good. Maybe we'll try again later on. But he's like, no, nah, it's good. We're using the movie, and they use it in the movie. And, you know. The rest is history. Uh, I particularly like that the priest didn't want to teach you guitar <laughs> because of Stairway to Heaven, and then you learned using the Led Zeppelin songbook. Absolutely. That kind of feels like a fuck you to that guy. It is. Yeah. Uh, man, I love it. Uh, do you still play? Uh, yeah. I still play. You know, I've, uh, I've written a bunch of songs. I just, you know, um, I, music has always been really important to me. When I was a kid, I had... You know, I never had guitar lessons. I had, you know, I, um, I would practice cornet and stuff like that. Uh, but I never was, you know, I, I just, I never had the uh, sort of structured stuff. Uh, so a lot of it was just like, you know, learning by doing and and keep practicing and playing. And so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's maybe hobby plus. But you know, I have 
the bragging rights of saying, oh, I did all little Spanish riffs in El Mariachi. But, so there is a day, though, that you could return as, as music composer for oh, something sure. else. Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping I can sneak a song in here or there on any other project that I may be doing. <laughs> So, uh, because I mentioned it, uh, you you had said how uh, Machete was c- kind of a big moment for you because it opened a lot oh, of yeah. doors. Uh, and for listeners who, pro- most of my listeners are probably aware that Machete began as a fake trailer in the double feature Grindhouse that Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez did. Uh, and it is, you know, for all extents and purposes, uh, homage to the kind of anti-hero, death wish sort of grindhouse movie of that era, right. but with a with a Mexican flair. Right. Uh, when you got involved, I'm assuming, was it a, a fake trailer? For, were you involved in the fake trailer? I was a little bit involved in the fake trailer. Um, so uh, the fake trailer, the, the concept for Machete really goes back all the way to the time of Desperado. And, um, and you know, Robert had cast Danny... Trejo to play a character called Navajas in Desperado, guy with all these knives and stuff. And, um, you know, I think at some point during that process, it was like, you know, it would be great to make a movie where, you know, you're the hero. The guy looks like you is the hero. And so there was all this sort of plans and thoughts about Machete. And, and it, you know, it just, it, it never really seemed to be more than an idea, I guess, in those early stages. And then when Grindhouse came around and the idea of doing, you know, this double feature with Planet Terror and Death Proof and the idea of doing these sort of fake trailers, uh, you know, um, was hit upon, then the thought was, oh, now we'll make a fake trailer for Machete, so we'll never have to make the movie. It's just going to be this fake trailer. We'll, you know, sort of shoot the wad in the trailer. And so when they were... When they had shot the bulk of the fake trailer on during the time that they were making um, uh, Planet Terror and Death Proof, and I was on set, and uh, so I wrote some of the, I wrote a scene for Cheech Marine in the um, in the confessional scene uh, while we while they were shooting Death uh, Death Proof and Planet Terror, and um, and then after that. Uh, you know, there was there was a lot of high hopes that this Grindhouse double feature would lead to a whole slate of Grindhouse double features. We would do Machete paired with SS women, uh, you know, uh, Werewolf Women of the SS with Rob Zombie, and you know, Don't would be paired with Thanksgiving, and they'd keep doing these, making actually making the movies, and um, and so I started work on trying to write a script, uh, you know, taking what was in the trailer. And writing, you know, developing a storyline and all this other stuff. And then, you know, uh, Grindhouse came out, didn't do all that well. And so then it was like, all right, we're not, we're not doing any more these double feature things. But then the trailer sort of took on a second life on YouTube. It started to, you know, get all these comments on the trailer. That's a movie I want to see, all that kind of stuff. And kind of, you know, had a small viral, um, uh, you know, happening going on with it. And so that sort of built things up again. And uh, so it started as, you know, well, we will do it. We will, we will make Machete, but it's going to be small, be low budget. Um, and uh, But then the casting situation started getting really interesting. And, you know, Robert's like, how about this? I, mean, I think we can get uh, Don Johnson to do this. I'm like, okay. And Lindsay Lohan, I think she's going to do this. I'm like, what? 
That's the first poster I remember seeing yeah. uh, before I even knew that they were taking uh, the fake trailer and that yeah. you all were going to make it into a feature film. I remember being somewhere and seeing Lindsay Lohan in a nun habit. Yep. And I was like, the fuck is that? Yeah. And I was excited because I was like, I love a good nunsploitation film. I love a good nunsploitation <laughs> film too. And, you know, I think that's one of my, uh, that's <laughs> an image I'm very proud of having had a hand in. This Talk about bringing it back to hand. Catholic school. Yeah, oh, yeah. And then <laughs> Cheech gets crucified in the, you know, Cheech plays Machete's brother who's a priest and he gets crucified, uh, you know, in his own church. And Machete just gets, you know, someone asked me, like, what's all with all this sort of religious stuff? I think, well, I went to Catholic school. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, it would it just got a bigger and bigger thing. And then, you know, there was, um, you know, getting news from Robert that Robert De Niro wanted to be in the movie. And he wanted to play this senator or whatever. I'm like, that's not a character. There's no, there's no story in that. He's just a guy that gets shot. So we started writing, trying to build a storyline for that and sending it to De Niro. And then we were getting emails back. It's like, yeah, it's good. Keep going. Keep going. He wasn't committing to anything yet. And it wasn't until we kind of came up with this idea, which is spoiler alert, you know, the character ends up uh, sort of this right wing um, Texas senator who ends up um, crucified on his own electric border fence dressed as an immigrant. <laughs> then De Niro said, yeah, I'm in. So you know, that went. So it's that's probably one of the most surreal things about that whole experience is how some of that has become our reality. Um, but uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a uh, it was uh, a weird uh, and somewhat organic process that just you know it, it took on its, its own thing and be, you know became uh, became something I think I'm I'm very proud of. Well, and I, there are a few things I want to ask you about this particular project. But one, you know, Machete comes from from the world of Grindhouse, not not Grindhouse necessarily right. double features, but like the whole like pantheon of late night cult cinema movies that are uh, made sort of outside of the system. And uh, although the film itself is not a horror movie, uh, that kind of film tends to draw horror audiences and right. we've seen that like you know when you are a horror nerd growing up like the the, the movies of like someone like John Waters or Herschel right. Gordon Lewis uh, or people you know the, the Death Wish those kind of movies um, do you think the appeal and the draw and what kind of connects Grindhouse to the world of horror even though Grindhouse movies are not always genre it, it speaks to that otherness that we began with this conversation because they're it's outsider cinema in oh, general yeah. absolutely Absolutely, and I was a, I was attracted to all of those things, and um, and I think also just you know, I think if there's a, there's an if there's an element uh, of of that whole sort of machete plant terror thing that you know I'm not a hundred percent behind, but I understand the um, the sort of reasons why it was done is that sort of faux scratched film aesthetic of you know making it look like it's some kind of you know 16 millimeter print that's been through you know um so many projectors and all that stuff but at the same time yes it it, it is sort of trying to um to pay homage to to that outsider cinema to that sort of um lower half of the double bill um kind of of, of cinema that you know as a kid i, I I was was always sort of attr attractive to me right even the you know I, I think about it also in terms of like 
you know, being a, a young kid and looking at uh, books that were filled with stills from silent films uh, and just feeling like these they were so exotic because you could never see them. It's like seeing all these stills or, or images from Times Square and the deuce of, you know, of, of uh, exploitation movies that I could never see because you could not, you know, right. they were not readily available or not accessible. But the, the lure and the 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 sort of legendary quality and mythological quality or mythical quality almost of them was so powerful. And, um, and, uh, so yeah, I think too, I, I mean, I, I was also the kid that cut out, I would make scrapbooks of all the movie ads from the newspaper. And a lot of these were already movies that I could not see, but I had, you know, I, I would cut out reviews and, and photos from, you know, different magazines and, and all the, the print ads in the newspaper of, you know, these movies that I, I did not have access to, but I was just sort of um, uh, attracted to uh, everything from scanners to, you know, Friday 13th or whatever um, that were just so um, interesting to me because of that sort of forbidden quality. I, keep, I guess I keep going back to that idea. Well, and I think there's something true to be true, like uh, to be said about that era where when a movie would leave town, you didn't know if you were going to see it. And so like, yeah. you know, reading those reviews, clipping out the pictures, seeing in a book this movie that maybe wasn't at your local video store, if you li- lived anywhere that even stocked more obscure movies. Yep. There was th- that forbidden quality, but it also, it, w- it was something even beyond forbidden. It was this idea that it just like existed. And so uh, in a lot of those cases, I remember sort of like inventing what these movies were in my brain because right. I just never thought I'd see them. And, um, and I'm sure that somebody on the internet, because I'm, I'm about to pair two movies that were not paired together uh but you know I, I, you would see like in a in a fangoria and they would have an old poster for like a hammer double feature and it would be like the revenge of frankenstein and the gorgon right and of course because cushing and lee had that prestige occasionally like on turner classic movies you'd see the revenge of frankenstein but i remember like looking and being like oh what's the gorgon right that that bet that movie's really cool but <laughs> the truth is they're both in that one too but yeah. like it was just like one of those where um it just didn't get showed as much because it yeah. was the second bill and i think you know, not not everything about the queer connection to horror goes back to that, but we do tend to like the underdogs. And, oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's also, I think, the movie that gets less seen, you, like, mythologize it. Yeah. There's something exciting about that. I mean, just in the last weekend, uh, I had I had gotten this um, this DVD set of Hammer films that, that included some pirate movies and these sort of... Um, there's one called The Stranglers of Bombay and then another one called... Uh, what's it called? Something about the Tongs with Christopher Lee and stuff like that. Um, and I was thinking about that same thing too. I, I remember like looking through books of horror films when I was a kid and seeing like, it's Oliver Reed is in, is he in a, a Frankenstein? One of the Frankenstein hammers? He's the Wolfman. He's the Wolfman. Yeah. But I think, well, maybe that's the one I'm thinking of too, right? That's the, which is the Wolfman he's in? It's uh... Uh, He's in The Curse of the Wolfman. It's set in Spain, but right. it's like clearly like Pinewood Studios in London. Right, right, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> but just uh, like, you know, Oliver Reed was also, you know, sort of an early crush in Oliver, I guess. But, you know, I just was like fascinated by, you know, these images of these things that I would never really have occasion to see. Although there was, when I was a kid growing up, there was like a Saturday afternoon matinee thing that would play some Hammer stuff, and I remember seeing some of those things, some of those Dracula films, some of the the Hammer stuff with Cushing and Lee, and being just like, just, just totally in love with that. Um, and uh, 
so some of it was, you know, was a known known, and some of it was a sort of a imagined unknown thing that, you know, obviously was was very alluring and powerful too. Right. Well, I guess that is the power of genre, especially the 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 things that you don't see are always more powerful than the ones that you do. Yeah. In some, but then but we want to see them. Yeah, we want to see them. Uh, so the one thing you had mentioned uh, when uh, talking about Machete, about this sort of ultimate grisly fate of Robert De Niro, mm. um, and sort of how uh, it's it's still topical. Uh, the the irony, well, the sad irony of, of it all is that it is still topical. Like, you know, this movie that takes on immigration issues uh, through a grindhouse lens. Uh, the, the truth is a lot of the things that happen to Machete are still applicable today, if not even more so. Um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of those things, uh, you know, those things really, I felt like that was my... Um, that was my wheelhouse. Those are the things that I was interested in doing. I was always interested in sort of smuggling, and you know, and maybe that also goes back to the sort of closet idea too, where you know, you, you um, I think even like the epigram I put on my that collection of short stories was a line from I think it's Two Gentlemen of Verona by Shakespeare that says, "Thou shalt not get such a secret from me, but by a parable." And uh, this idea of sort of like smuggling stuff in and and the you know the code. Um, the hidden code of, of things. Now, obviously, Machete isn't, um, you know, it, it's not great literature or anything like that. But just the idea that you could have a grindhouse exploitation movie that actually is, you know, making some sort of commentary on things, um, you know, was was interesting to me. Uh, the other movies that you mentioned, like Death Wish or, or Mr. Majestic, uh, you know, which also has a political angle to it, and um, and telling those kinds of stories in a way that, you know, well, it was it was something that was really um, important for me to do. I think. But isn't that ultimately like the true power of of horror or genre or subversive? Sin- well, that's it. It's subversive because yeah. when y- you look at the the movies that have the most impact, of course, there are the popcorn movies and the movies that we like for fun or the salaciousness of it all. But I think that when when these kind of movies are are done right, and I say right with air quotes because that means something different to different people, it, you can use them as a mechanism to say things that you otherwise can't say straight away and you know a lot of times on this show we talk about kind of the queerness of it all but the you know the power is you can use something like machete to have a good time have danny trejo talk about how he doesn't text but also kind of like put it in front of people and be like you know here's a real problem that is affecting real people and you know just right. sit and think about this. Right. And in that way, like I know that you said it's not Shakespearean text, but it's social text. Yeah. And that's important. Yeah, I, I hope so. I, I mean, I, I, I agree completely. I think those are the things, you know, I think back about you know, now that it's in my head, that night of watching Night of the Living Dead with all these, you know, teenage boys in the tennis courts and, you know, the finale of that movie and feeling... I know that I, you know, feeling that sense of like, this is more than what it appears to be on its surface. This, this is, uh, you know, um, this feels like important. Like there's something important that's being said by the fact that that we've had this black hero who ends up on a funeral pyre at the end of the story, even though he's human. 
you know, that there's something, there's some socio-political thing going on there. Um, and, uh, and, you know, or Dawn of the Dead, too, feeling like this is really talking about, you know, consumer culture or something. You know, the, all these sort of things where you can just sort of, I mean, I think that was part of my um, sort of upbringing or my training or education. But I think it's just like I sort of look for these things. And even from an early age, feeling like I was looking for the hidden messages. I was looking for the you know the thing behind the curtain I, I, I was looking for the meanings of those things um you know not a horror film at all but i, I remember the first time watching one flew of a cuckoo's nest and I, w- I was at a, a friend of the family's house i must have been i don't know 10 8 10 somewhere in there and you know uh they were showing it and it was on tv it was on hbo or something and it was this small TV, and, and of course, I, I don't know if the movie is shot, you know, wide or in cinemascope, but it was cropped. And it wasn't really pan and scan. You were just seeing, like, the, ca- the, the frame never moved. It was just like this. Mm-hmm. And so I would see these, you know, cut to close-ups, and you would get, like, half faces and stuff. And I didn't know about widescreen. I didn't know about aspect ratio. And I was like, I remember saying to this friend of the family this kid i was like that's really interesting i don't think i knew to say the director but i said they're showing us only half of these guys faces and they're all crazy so we're seeing like this split you know it's like somehow this i was clued into the idea even though it wasn't true at all it was just you know bad framing (laughs) but i was like this is the i feel like that from an early age i was looking for those kinds of things it's like they're only showing half of the faces i think they're showing how these guys are all like cracked in some way or partial or you know oh i think that's so interesting because it was sort of you you projected the subtext and it was just actually bad aspect ratio <laughs> but it was important nonetheless right and you know it's interesting we talk about the subversive elements that hide in art like you know that's a movie about a uh, a mental hospital but it's also sort of about um, establishment. Yeah, Nurse Ratched is one of the. I would say that it is a horror movie because Nurse Ratched, oh to me, is the embodiment of of establishment keeping us at bay. Right, and it's the it's also the embodiment of this sort of this sort of um, maternal figure who is seems to be completely without empathy, and this maternal figure who um, who fails to see the 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 life around her mm-hmm. and the fragility of like the billy character played by brad durf in that movie and it, and it continues to like stab him until he does it himself you know it's it's so it is so powerful and it is those things that you know i think also really stuck with me is the sort of coldness of evil if you want to call it that and just this uh, this that sometimes evil isn't you know this sort of cackling demonic thing but it's just this this cold affectless you know complete total lack of empathy and almost you know sociopathic uh, cold clinical um villain that that i think is like you said it, if that's horror that's really mm-hmm. scary and this d- dissection of One Flew Over the cu- Cuckoo's Nest is exactly a good time for me to ask you a little bit about, uh, you filmed some episodes of a sh- TV show called Our Story? 
where you talk on about on story on story yeah and uh where you talk about movies and you, you you break it down but you also go around occasionally and speak at events about film yeah so in addition to writing movies you have a passion for film studies it seems yeah i think so i mean uh, like i said it was all on story is the um uh tv show that was created by the austin film festival so during the festival which is uh you know if, if any of the listeners have not been it's a great festival to go to i'm going again this year and um you know uh it's there's a screenwriters conference that's a big chunk of that festival where a lot of writers and directors filmmakers come and and do panels and uh, i've been on those panels i've been a moderator for those panels i've been really fortunate to use that when i wasn't you know, before I lived in Los Angeles, um, I, that was sort of like the time when Los Angeles came to me, and I was able to start bridging that gap because of Machete. Uh, but yeah, the, the uh, it, I think it's on it's on PBS stations across the country now, um, and they've put out three books of of um, of material from all of those panels. So I was really fortunate. I did a conversation in film with Ted Talley. Uh, talking about Silence of the Lambs and all of his all of the script, scripts that he'd written, um, horror. I'd done panels with uh, um, Amanda Silver and Rick Jaffa, who wrote Planet of the Apes. I had written uh, done uh, panels with uh, Mick Garris, and I. There's an episode of uh, of On Story where we deconstruct the Fly, the Cronenberg remake of the Fly. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm I've been. Uh, you know, I'm definitely, I guess, um, autodidact in terms of never having taken. I didn't go to film school. I didn't take film classes. But you know, um, I I would just read and study a lot and watch films and discuss films and you know, um, so yeah, it's something that I'm I I am passionate about and I do enjoy talking about those things. Well, I love it because it essentially shows that films were your film school. You yeah. You learn by watching and dissecting and just loving. Yeah, I mean, uh, and it's one of those things that I really, you know, um, I going to university at the time that I did at the University of Texas in the late '80s, early '90s. There was, even though I wasn't a part of the film school, there were so many opportunities for. Um, for viewing things, uh, there were great video stores like Vulcan Video, which is still around in Austin. But there was a film program. The student union had an amazing film program. There were art houses. There were you know special screenings of stuff all the time, and uh, so I just felt like I had access. And then when I started working at the student newspaper as an entertainment reporter, I was you know writing reviews of films and interviewing. I interviewed. You know, during that time, Neil Gaiman and Clive Barker and Ray Garten and other horror people like that, too. It was, you know, kind of my thing. And so um, I just I felt like that was the beginning or, you know, one step along that path of just really being in love with uh, with movies and and uh, and finding those things. I was always a, a searcher for all that stuff, an advanced beginner, as we say. An advanced beginner. Hashtag advanced beginner. Hashtag advanced beginner. <laughs> um, so a lot of the work that we've discussed of yours up until this point mm-hmm. exists in a, in a genre space or a hyper-reality. Uh, but a recent project of yours, which I mentioned at the beginning, The Last Rampage, uh, right. is based on a very true uh, story. And tell me a little bit about that project. And maybe, are there challenges 
adapting something from true life as opposed to... Yeah, uh, well, that that project came about. I was writing on Dustle Dawn, the series, and I was really fortunate to work with Dwight Little, um, who uh, directed my, my first episode on the first season of that series. And Dwight, you know, came from film. Uh, he was, you know, in the 90s, he made movies like... Um, um, I'm blanking on the Seagal movie that he did, uh, but he also did Rapid Fire with Brandon Lee. He did Phantom of the Opera with Robert England. He did uh, Halloween 4. Uh, and and then, you know, over the last decade or so, he'd been doing a lot of television. And he really had had this project of the Gary Tyson story, uh, Last Rampage, for a long time. His, um, uh, his son, Jason Richter, uh, who people might know is the kid from Free Willy, uh, those Free Willy movies, <laughs> um, Jason had been approached with the material 20 years ago to play the youngest son uh, in the story. And so the story is a, a true story about this guy who was a convicted felon, convicted murderer, who was in, in prison in Arizona in the 1970s. And he had three sons who had basically grown up with their dad in prison and um they they arranged to break him out of prison another uh convicted murderer named randy greenwald escaped with them and they went on this you know sort of last rampage of trying to get out of arizona and into mexico and it was this circuitous uh, thing in which you know um, people died and you know uh it was it was a, a sad event and Dwight had been kind of trying to get this, you know, going in some way. And when we were doing Dust Till Dawn, the series, um, we had such a good time on my episode. He, you know, he, he approached me with a, with an early draft of the script, and and I came on board and started to, you know, work on figuring out how to crack the story. And um, and uh, you know, it, it. The reality is, is that it does have the sort of horrific element, which is. You know, what do you do when you think you're doing the right thing? You know, the oldest son, Donnie, you know, thought he was doing the right thing, even though he was conflicted about it, of freeing his father. But what do you do when you realize that your father is, you know, criminally insane and really doesn't really care if you live or die? And what do you do to get your younger brothers out of the situation? Uh, you know, it wasn't until that sort of clicked in my own brain that the story, the script kind of came together. And so, you know, it was based off of the the nonfiction account um, uh, called Last Rampage uh, by a guy named Jim Clark. And, uh, and there was a TV film that was made in the 80s with Robert Mitchum playing Gary Tyson. And I think it's... Uh, Lance Kerwin and Eric Stoltz and James Spader, I think, are the three kids. I could be wrong, um, and which I, I never watched. But um, I just once I felt like I knew what the story was, I wasn't so much interested in trying to be, um, you know, uh, faithful to the note of everything. It was it allowed me to just. I, I, I felt like the characters were just talking. I was just writing down what they were saying. I, I felt like I wasn't writing. I wasn't creating dialogue. I was just letting them talk. And so, uh, you know, uh, it, was a, it was a great experience. It was so fun to do. 
um, Robert Patrick, Heather Graham, Bruce Davison, John Hurd, Alex McNichol, this great cast, um, and, uh, you know, this little indie that we shot a couple of summers ago, and I can't wait to do another one like that again. It was it was so much fun to, to do that. Well, it takes a little bit of fury to go on a last rampage, and I want to talk a little bit about a new project of yours, which is a different kind of furious adventure, uh, and it is billed as a Mexicanime. <laughs> uh, tell me about that. Well, Seis Manos is called Seis Manos, and um, it will hopefully be on Netflix around this time next year. It's going to take a whole year of animation, but we finished writing the first season, and it is um, a sort of grindhouse a little bit of a mashup of kind of, I kind of describe it as machete meets kung fu on the set of Coco. <laughs> Um, it's uh, and it, we're calling it a Mexican anime. It's uh, it's the first. Um, it's going to be the first uh, original animated series um, um, that's you know. Uh, f- f- I guess the idea was that it was the first um, for Latin America, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's in English language. I think there'll be a Spanish language version as well. But it's basically the story of these three kids who are orphaned at the beginning of cartel violence in Mexico in the 70s and are raised by a Chinese exile um, uh, who has fled China decades earlier and has been kind of living in hiding. And when he um, meets a bad end, they go up against this mysterious and dark cartel. Um, and um, it's uh, it's an adult animated series, and it was uh, so much fun to do, uh, working with Powerhouse Animation and Viz Media and Netflix. Uh, and it's just me and uh, my writing partner on that, a guy named Daniel Dominguez, who's amazing, and um, just really excited about that. And hopefully there'll be more announcements coming out about that soon. So how does it feel to be in the world of animation? It's a, kind of like a bold new step away from... from yeah, I mean, you know, I, I feel like both... Um, it's a it's a little bit of a blessing and a curse of of to me it's always been a blessing of I don't feel confined by genre uh, and I never really have even though I have I, I feel like I have affinities in so many different things and I'm attracted to so many different things um, you know I never felt like you know um, once I did one thing that I had to keep doing that one thing over and over again or stay in sort of stay in my lane. At the same time, I think that sometimes makes things, you know, gives it has its own challenges. But, um, but the animated space, you know, I'd never, never really thought about it before. And then this this project um, just sort of started to develop. And you know, I I was really lucky to partner with with really great people. Uh, the same animation studio, Powerhouse, does Castlevania on Netflix, which has been you know really successful for them. And um, so, you know, it's like when you're when you're working with great people and you have this sort of latitude to be creative with really creative people, I think it's just, um, you know, it's it's the best of both worlds. It's it's everything I could possibly hope for. And, um, you know, I, I think uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, you know, to seeing it and seeing, you know, what people think of it. But I feel like uh, the animated space is is also, you know, uh, one of those um, 
in a way it's a little bit new territory certainly certainly new territory for me but i feel like it's it's one of those things where it's, it's getting more and more attention more and more interesting more and more diverse more and more possibilities for all kinds of things in it so it feels um you know really exhilarating to be a part of something that you know is hopefully doing new and interesting things. Well, it's always good to break new ground. Yeah. Now, when you describe the show, uh, I couldn't help but think that it's uh, like a Shaw Brothers movie by, by way of Mexico. Absolutely. And I know that you are a fan of Shaw Brothers, mm-hmm. and I have not really, on the course thus far of Dead for Filth, we've not got a chance to talk about their illustrious studio. Yep. Uh, the Shaw Brothers, of course, um, were Hong Kong-based yep. and made a number of amazing uh, kung fu and genre films. Do you have a favorite uh, horror film that they did? Because they did some really amazing horror films. Um, I love uh, The Seven Golden Vampires. Which they partnered with Hammer to do. Which they partnered with Hammer to do. I also liked, um, you know, it's this, I, maybe in a, in a generous way, it can be classified as horror, but The Crippled Adventures is really powerful. Uh, it's just, it's, um, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, Shaw Brothers does Todd Browning's Freaks. Mm-hmm. Um, with Kung Fu and uh, Mass Avengers, all those, you know, um, um, those stories, I think, are the, you know, Seven Deadly Venoms and that kind of stuff. Um, there's some really great ones. Uh, it's been, you know, uh, I've been kind of diving into some of that back catalog as research and, uh, and you know, just stuff that I'm, you know, kind of reacquainting myself with some of that stuff. And uh, it's, it's, it's great. Now, in the discussion of this show, you described yourself as someone who doesn't like to be constricted by genre. So, looking ahead, is there a genre or a style of story or, uh, you know, a style of film that you haven't got a chance to do yet that you're dying to do? Um, Well, you know, I think that, uh, I think that, you know, one of the other projects that is is, uh, kind of a long simmering thing that hopefully we'll be picking up some some steam uh, in the future is an uh, adaptation of a coming-of-age novel that's set in 1950s Italy uh, that has a little bit of a supernatural element to it, but is um, is a little bit of a sort of cinema paradiso meets summer 42 with a little ghost story thrown in there um, called You Mine. Uh, so that is, you know, something I'm, you know, I, it's very different from most anything else that I've done. Um, but you know, I think that uh, I, I'm really looking forward to finding a way uh, forward in telling the stories and the kinds and touching on the kinds of things um, in a more deliberate and overt way than in whatever kind of um, closeted way I've approached in the past. So telling. Uh, telling authentic stories from the sort of open perspective of uh, you know of an openly gay Latino writer is something I'm really intrigued by um, because I felt I feel like in the past I either wasn't ready to do that or I wasn't I hadn't found the right sort of way forward in that and now sort of you know, I feel like as an advanced beginner, I need to, you know, take the next step into, you know, um, the, the next the next level of, of sort of that awareness. 
So in a way, despite all these successes, and they are successes, those are the foundation for you to now kick open the door to tell even more authentic stories. Yes, absolutely. I, I hope so. I love that. Well, I can't wait. Uh, what have you seen recently that inspires you or that you liked? What have I seen recently that inspired me that I liked? Um, I have to say that, you know, I, I, I was thinking about what what horror film that I had seen recently, and, and I think of the of horror films that I seen there was nothing that completely won me over but I'm also the kind of guy that you know I'm much more likely to um, to dig up something uh, than to you know discover something new it's just out but as far as the thing that I think has really um, affected me the, uh, in theater lately Two, two films I think are really powerful. One is a documentary uh, about Alexander McQueen, called McQueen, um, and the other is Spike Lee's new film, Black Klansman, which, you know, I think is really one of the m- most powerful statements that, that anyone could make, but that, uh, that he's made as a filmmaker in a long time. And um, uh, I re- highly recommend both of those uh, for completely different reasons, but they were both very effective at the stories that they were um, they were telling. Um, you know, I think that there's there's um, there's obviously something tragic in both of those stories, and the story of of Alexander McQueen, who you know seemed to be on top of the world and was you know. Uh, Maybe the closest analog in film to someone like him would be someone like Fassbender, who who seemed to burn himself out by just making and making and making and making and making in such a, a short period of time, so much stuff. And McQueen that just kept making and making. You see in the documentary, show after show, runway after runway of all, and just completely like every, you know, every every uh, line was was just like. Amazing in its creativity and its in its thinking outside the box and every every element of it, um, and you know still suffered you know so much from um, from depression from issues of you know body image and um, uh, you know addiction and all of those kinds of things that I think really resonate with so many people that are creative you know uh, that are gay or queer, um, and then you know Black Klansman is just such uh, an interesting you know not to draw any comparison at all to machete but taking this sort of like uh, if you look at the trailers and you, you're sort of sold a kind of black exploitation comedy which you know maybe on some level the film is but it's obviously there's a lot of other stuff that's happening in that story and um, you know the finale of that film without giving anything away you know draws a parallel um, and it it uh I think it it really is powerful and, and very moving and and I think ultimately all of these things um inspire me and I think inspire a lot of people in the audience to to push ourselves more to tell these stories more to keep shouting from the rooftops to keep um disrupting to keep resisting to keep making noise to keep telling our stories and um and so they were both very powerful experiences for me lately in the theater. Well, and I think it brings it full circle to the discussion we had at the beginning about how you can use art to speak truth to power. And you can use that uh, as commentary and uh, 
by hiding it in there, you're actually putting it out in the open because it's not hidden at all. Right. Uh, so we talked about the kind of things that you hope to make in the future. Uh, but the more direct question is what's next? What's on the, what's on the horizon? What is next? Well, we're, um, some of the team that I've worked with on Seis Manos, we're um, trying to pursue both the second season and some other projects in the animated space and the adult animated space, which I'm really excited about. Um, and, um, you know, I've been talking to a couple of different people about um, some t- TV projects and a feature project. Um, nothing, nothing completely firm yet, but some, a lot of promising uh, things that might be just around the corner. So I'm just excited to, you know, um, to, to try to break through some walls on, on, on those things and, uh, and push things forward. But like I said, it's been, um, so much of this has been, uh, you know, the fortunate experience of working with really great people and, um, and I think building those kinds of relationships where you, all you want to do is keep making stuff with the people that, that you trust and the, and, um, and who trust you and finding that, you know, um, that sort of symbiosis has, has been really great. Well, before we head into the night, do you have any uh, words of advice for, for creatives or queer people who are just starting out on their journey and looking to, to make things happen? Um, yes, uh, you know, make, do, um, you know, build, um, tell those stories, um, don't, uh, you know, keep pushing yourself further and further. Um, there's, uh, there's need, there's demand, uh, you know, talking about recently, um, ideas about, you know, are things as diverse, you know, uh, are there opportunities for diverse writers, are there opportunities for Latinos and women and gays in the industry? And it's like, I, I think we have to realistically say, yes, and there have never been more than there are now. So strike and, uh, and, and make and do and, um, and, uh, and connect, uh, make those, you know, don't, uh, I, I think, you know, I speak from experience in saying that I know that there are writers who, um, who are completely self-assured and, uh, and have really healthy egos and, um, you know, run, uh, their stories up the flagpole and, uh, and everyone salutes. I've never been one of those writers. I've always been, um, sort of guarded and, um, insecure and, you know, um, closeted, I guess. But I think that the more, the more that we chip away at those insecurities, the more that we embrace, um, our, our fragility, our frailty and, um, and recognize that there is value in the stories that we're telling, recognize that there's value in ourselves that um that just that i think that's what leads to bigger and better things and so i encourage i encourage that kind of openness that kind of um exploratory sense of self of you know searching and making and doing and writing and filming and producing 
and um, there are no limits. Be, you know, be the you you want to be. Write the story you want to write. Tell the story you want to tell. Make the movie you want to see. I mean, I literally have nothing else to add to that. That was perfect and beautiful and just, yeah, kick down the closet door of, of life, artists, and uh, I'll just be. Just be. Where can people find you? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter at Al Rods, A-L-R-O-D-Z. Um, on Instagram at Wright Riguez. Um, on Facebook, you can find me around. I'm around. I'll be in Austin for the Austin Film Festival um, in October. I think it's around the 25th of October. Um, so if you're there, look me up, and uh, you know, we'll see you around. Thank you again for coming to Thank the show you, today. Michael. It was great. Please check out all of Alvaro's work uh, that you can find out in the world and stay tuned for Seismanos coming to Netflix here uh, within the next year. And uh, I'm just so happy to have him on today and get to talk about all these wonderful things. Uh, yeah, that's just how we do here on Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always in glam and gore. Good night. And good luck. <laughs> <laughs>